All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. Today on the show, Tom Jones is here. Tom Jones. I mean, come on. Everybody knows Tom Jones. There's not a person listening who doesn't know a Tom Jones song. And he's still out there. He's recording music. And he's doing his thing at 80 years old. And his new album is called Surrounded by Time. And it's a, an album done by an artist who knows where he's at in his life, in his career. But he's still swinging, man. He's still swinging. Is beer can chicken necessary? Is shoving a an open can of beer into the cavity of a chicken and throwing it into the... Into the uh, grill you know arranging it so it stands up straight to cook is it necessary i didn't have a great experience with it and i had bought a thing that you could put the beer can in and shove the chicken on too but maybe i don't know maybe i'm not uh adept enough or or experienced enough at the barbecue how do you get the fucking can out of the chicken's ass i mean it's like you get this thing what do you got to carve it or cut it up holding it upright. I mean, you got this mess of a beer can in there. Is there some trick? There's got to be some fucking hillbilly trick to pull the can out of a chicken's ass after you make the beer can chicken. I didn't know it. It's sort of like not having a a Valium connection when you're strung out on cocaine. It's like now I'm I'm frustrated. I'm upset. My heart is pounding. I might die. And I got no way to come down. Now I got this chicken. I I, I was excited about it, but now I can't get the can out of its ass and I barely want to eat it. Oh, fuck. There's beer spilling everywhere. Now what? But buying beer? Buying beer? Like, see the drug talk. It's a little unnerving. Uh, I got to talking about it. Well, you know, a few weeks ago I had Hunter Biden on and then we talked, you know, the drug talk and then, you know, I got, you know, I got my own people in the, uh, you know, in the secret society, in the sober racket, we do the drug talking. Then Dino and me were talking about uh, Bay Area drinking and druggy experiences from our youths. It's weird. It seems so far back. Can you imagine, man? I'm so fucking relieved that I don't have the burden of needing drugs at this age. Fuck, this coffee's good. God damn it. So close, man. I was so close to fucking doing some nicotine. It's so stupid. The persistence of the fucking bug. The brain. God damn it. Oh, so buying beer as a sober person, like 22 years sober, first of all, you get into that thing like, I don't pay attention to the fucking liquor section. I don't go shopping for liquor. But I needed beer for the, to put in a chicken butt. I needed beer to shove into the chicken. One can, a regular sized can of beer. Nope. Only tall boys available. No one's fucking around anymore. It's like, you want value? You want to get a buzz on? You ain't going to get it with one can. You know it. And two cans is a lot for lunch. Why not just have a tall boy? Just a bunch of tall boys. So many brands I don't understand. I don't know. I spent like 25 minutes looking at fucking beers, wrestling with the idea. Where I was like, well, if I want a small can, it looks like I got to get a six pack or a 12 pack. Do I want that in the house? What's the excuse of that in the house? Oh, for friends, for people come over. No one's coming over. Do you want to have beer sitting in there for fucking a year? It wouldn't bother me. Is it necessary though, dude? Is it necessary? Can't you just fucking taste it? You get that little pull in your chest, that little weird hunger, the pang of the monster awakening, the pang of the monster, the pang of the demon going, what do we do? What's up? I've been fucking sleeping for so long. 
I am so thirsty. Oh, fuck. What have I been doing? I've been like a a coma. I'm ready. I'm ready. I got to get out of this supermarket, man. I got to get out with one fucking tall boy and I got to figure out how to put a tall boy into a chicken and not have a bunch of fucking demon food around the house. So I got some uh, Corona premium tall boy and I poured it into a Zevia can, Zevia soda, which I'm addicted to. Put it in the chicken and, uh, you know, it, it was fine, but it was unnecessary. I figured out how to cook chicken. These are not important issues. There's fucking police killing people, systemic racism. Tucker Carlson is a fucking Nazi. You know, there's problems. Problems persist. And I'm hung up. I'm beating myself up for not knowing how to extract a goddamn half-filled can of open beer out of a cooked chicken that's still hot. People are dying, man. What the fuck is wrong with me? I'm so thirsty. What are you doing? The game is over. I'm thirsty. Let's go. You don't need a life. Feed me. Uh, it's not happening. Relax. I'm acting. Don't freak out. Don't get too concerned. But let's talk about something. I'll be honest with you. I talked to my booking agent. And this is, I guess this is relevant. I'm kind of concerned all of a sudden that when we come out of this pandemic, if and when we ease out of it, you know, just how paralyzed with fear I might be and, and how much perhaps unresolved grief I might have and, and how just fucked up my chops are. My, you know, do I still have them? How out of shape I am. Now, what I learned before the pandemic and before Lynn's death and before, you know, whatever happened over the last year, monkey's gone, the fond is gone, was that the audience I had built for myself were, were good people, grown-up people, nice people, good tippers, people who knew how to behave in a fucking theater. And, and I, I want that. And that's the space you carve out for yourself. Now, I've got to kill the sort of more weirdly competitive, spite-driven part of me and just sort of embrace what I've built in the world for myself. All this from saying, you know, as we ease out of this, I talked to my booking agent. Yeah, I know people are rushing out to book and people are excited to get out and do things, but I don't want to go out with anything half-baked. I don't want to go out and do an hour of, of workshop material for big theaters. So, like, I just told my booking agent, I said, look, man, if we're going to do a big theater run, let's do it in the spring next year. Let me fucking ease back in. Let's do a residency at a theater, you know, at, at Dynasty Typewriter someplace in town. I'll start doing the comedy store. We'll do some club dates over the you know few months in the fall. Maybe I'll be able to showcase the whatever's becoming the hour at the New York Comedy Festival. I don't take this shit lightly. And I've got to figure out what is life or death for me now? I've got to figure out what I need to resolve on stage as a funny man. I've got to figure out what is funny to me at this juncture. I guess all that to say that I'm probably not going to do a major tour until next year, but I'll be popping up places and I'll let you know where. Uh, you know, workshopping stuff, maybe at some clubs for four nights, you know, doing that kind of stuff. Just trying to figure out what is life or death for me when it comes to comedy. Because that's the only way I know how to do it. But I got to engage. And, you know, between you and me, seriously, maybe a little music. I'm not saying I'm putting a band together. I'm just saying maybe there's a show to do with some music. I've been, I've been enjoying that. Maybe I could do a show, a live show, where I cook a bread 
Maybe there's a live show where I, I roll out of you know a Viking range and I I uh, I do a live Irish soda bread with some slightly distorted echoey blues tunes riffing, then some observational comedy, and then uh you know some eating, and then some you know sober reflection, and then a, a big closer with uh, some large riffs. That's what. That's the live show. I just got to figure out how to tour with a a professional sized range, and also the equipment and a refrigerator. What's Mark doing? Have you seen his show? It's wild, man. He's got like a full kitchen up there and an amp and a guitar, and he's kind of moving through those things. Stand up, amp, guitar, uh, kitchen. It's weird, but it's interesting. I haven't seen it before. Do you see that? Did you go see Marin live? Yeah, dude. He's got a full, like a professional Viking grill up there and a, a .0 fridge. Is that what they're called? And he he bakes a bread and he plays guitar and he's kind of narrating it and doing stand-up at the same time. I've never seen anything like it. Where he bakes a bread. Yeah, at the end of the show, there's bread. Huh. Is it good? I don't know, man. It needs a bigger closer. I mean, the bread's good and the bit is... Yeah, I mean, it's good, you know, the, but the closer's kind of the bread, you know, so there's a lot hanging on the bread. Tom Jones, uh, the new album, Surrounded by Time, comes out this Friday, April 23rd, on S-Curve Records. You get it wherever you get music. He's 80 years old. 80! And he's fucking firing on all cylinders. Just listen to me and Tom Jones. <laughs> Hello, Sir Tom Jones. How are you? I'm all right. I'm very good, thanks. I've had my both shots, so I'm 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 bulletproof. <laughs> well, well, that's great. <laughs> I listened to the one you did with Hugh Grant. Oh yeah, he's a he's funny. Oh, he's funny as fuck. He is. Yeah. Excuse my French. Oh, you can fuck all you want. Oh, because we always blame the French. So we always say, excuse my French. So we always blame the French, and so we should. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny, man, because it's nice <laughs> to meet you. Because when I was a kid, one of the first cassettes I had was, I think, a, a Greatest Hits record. Because I, I was looking over the stuff about you, and it reminded me my parents had given me this cassette player they didn't use anymore, and I had a box of fucking cassettes, and one of them... <laughs> was the green, green grass of home. Yeah. And and Delilah, I'm sitting there reading this thing, and I'm like, I can sing that song. I was like 10 years old. I don't remember the last time I heard it, but I can sing Delilah. Well, if you could sing Delilah in the same key as I recorded it in, it must have been before your balls dropped. <laughs> because that's high. <laughs> you could belt it out, man. Has your voice changed like now? How does it sound? Uh, well, it's lower now. Because, um, like everybody else, you know, even if you're not a singer, you as you get older, your voice drops, your speaking voice. Uh -huh. If you listen to young people speak, you know, they're all most of them are up there. And then, as you get older, of course, you get more character in your voice. Right, right. That's a nice way to say it. I mean, that's that's how the agent talks to you as they uh, exactly. as the uh, as the work dries up. That's right. Now that you're of a certain age, we have to look at life in a different uh, light. Yeah, sure. But you don't seem to be, you know, worn down in any way. I, I mean, not at all. Not at all. It's it's a it's a strange thing because I'm 80 years old now, but my voice is still about 30. Yeah. Well, that's great. So that's uh, and that's a big thing because with all the singers, you see, your vibrato, you you lose control 
more than anything else, it's not so much volume, it's the flexibility of the voice because the, the older you get, the less control you have over your vocal cords. Yes. It's, it's, just, it's just a natural thing. And you, you listen to old singers and they start, uh, 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 uh. you know, they can't speed it up. Well, that's all you've got to do really is push it harder, you see. The harder you push, the faster the vibrato gets. I mean, that's a, it's a fact. But maybe some of those old people, they can't, uh, they can't seem to, to get it. And I feel very sorry for them. But, uh, they, don't have but the, thank God. they don't have the Tom Jones push. Well, this is it. So you've got to be able to push the shit out of it. And uh, <laughs> I can still do that, thank God. <laughs> How's everything else working with the pushing? All right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So far, so good. You know, there's always Viagra. You know, I mean, that's uh, <laughs> a little help, a little help here and here and there is all right. No, 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 no shame in that. At eighty, you got to do what you got to do. Exactly. I know a great joke about that, by the way. Go ahead. Well, this old fella goes to the doctors and he said, "Doctor, you know, I'm ninety years old." He says, and he said, "I got a problem here." The doctor said, "What's the matter?" He said, well, look, when I was 20, he said, I get a hard on. He said, I used to grab a hold of it with both hands and I couldn't budge it. He said, and then 30, the same thing. He said, 40, a little bit. And then he said, 50, I'm bending it over a little bit more. He said, now that I'm 90, I can bend it all the way over. Am I getting stronger? <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> and the doctor said, yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. Whatever you say. <laughs> you, you're, do, you're, you're still alive. You made it. Yes. But Jesus Christ, man, I mean, when you think back on the life, you know, because I just read about your life, but I mean, what, mm -hmm. what, like, how far back do you go? What are the great memories? Do you do that much? Uh, oh, yeah, all the time. I've got uh, a lot of pictures in my hallway of the flat that I've got now in London. Yeah. And... Uh, and because when I had a TV show, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, I had a lot of great people on there. So uh, I've got a lot of pictures to yeah. prove it. And I've got a great picture of um, Sinatra and myself uh, when I was walking at Caesar's Palace and coming through the casino, I was going to see Sammy Davis. Yeah. And, and Sinatra was sitting at the bar and he says, Thomas, well... He was, I think he was the only guy that used to call me Thomas. <laughs> so anyway, I thought, oh, oh, that's Frank. So he says, come and sit down. So I said, well, I'm going to see Sammy Davis. And he said, he can wait. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> he said, I'll send somebody to tell him, you know, put the show back 30 minutes or something. <laughs> and I said, okay. So I sat there and we drank. And um, it, there was a girl who wanted a picture. So she came up with a little, you know, a little camera. And, yeah. and she said, wow, you know, Frank Sinatra, Tom Jones together. Could I have a picture? And he said... If you want to do it properly, let's get the camera girl over. So we called the camera girl over, and we had this great shot together. So I'm, I, I got to thank that girl, whoever she was, you know, that wanted that picture because I've got a ten by eight. It's yeah. a classic. You know, I'm sitting at the bar, and he's got his hand on my shoulder, sort of, you know, yeah. looking over my shoulder. It's fantastic. So I've got a lot of those pictures with Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard. You know, all my heroes. Were they were they were they uh, mostly in Vegas or were they at the at the TV show? At the TV show, I did a um, I did some duets with Jerry Lee. Uh, I did all his you know the hits that he had. He's, he's still at it. Oh sure, I talked to him last week. I you call did? him up regularly. Yeah, <laughs> but his his accent, <laughs> you know, he's got a southern accent, and I said, "Hey Jerry, how you feeling?" I said, "Oh great." 
Oh, great. <laughs> as long as you're feeling good. <laughs> he seems to be talking. You didn't you, you didn't make out what he said, but he seems to be talking. Exactly, because he had he had a stroke. You see, he was in, uh, so maybe that's had oh. some effect on him. But I saw I saw just before while we were on that subject. Yeah. Uh, in 2019, I was doing a tour over there, and uh, we were down south. So my two heroes, you know, was always Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard, mm. and they both. Well, little Richard then passed away, but they were both in Tennessee. So I said, well, I don't know when I'm going to get this close another time. So we still, we held the plane over, you know, we was using this plane. So I flew to, Mem- flew to Memphis, saw Jerry Lee. And then as soon as I saw him, he was in hospital at the time. And then I flew to Nashville and saw little Richard. And I'm so glad that I saw little Richard because not long after that, he passed, you know. So I've yeah. got, I think the last picture because first of all, he said he didn't want a picture. Yeah. You know, no pictures. I said, I just want to come and shake your hand. You know, I've known him for years. Uh, so then he says to his son, take a picture. Yeah. So I've got the pictures. So. He, he was so great, man. Like, I mean, when it, when he died, you know, I've got this box set and I kind of started to go through it. And it, it was just, there was just really nothing like that guy. No. He was unbelievable. And again, he did a gospel. I don't know whether you know this, but there's a gospel album he did with Quincy Jones in 1962. It's fantastic. And you would never think it was Little Richard. I play it. You know, I play that one, and then nobody gets it. And then I play his greatest hits, you know, and I said, it's the same guy. Wow. It's unbelievable. So he must have found the, I guess he always had the faith, but maybe he was really feeling it changed him yeah well he, he sang with a pure voice you know because when he did the rock and roll things like as i'm saying with the vibrato he used to push the shit out of it yeah. you know and singing his singing his throat but his normal voice was just a beautiful uh gospel voice so when when you were coming up i mean like what you grew up where in wales in south wales i don't coal even mining. know uh, oh coal mining i don't even know i have i have no sense of that i i, I have a sense of uh no. london and well, the country well i noticed that I've noticed that with Americans, they don't know much outside America. Well, no, I've been to London, I've been to England, I've been to Scotland, I've been <laughs> I to Ireland, I love Ireland. I just haven't made it to Wales yet because uh, well, I, I haven't felt the urge to go see the birthplace of Tom Jones yet. Oh, okay. What about Dylan Thomas? What about, you know, there's some great people who have come out of there. <laughs> All but right, anyway. Yeah, I'm going. Yes. As soon as we get through the plague. Right, exactly. Wales gets bypassed a lot. I mean, I understand that. Sometimes one American said, one American said to me once, "So where is Wales then? In Scotland?" <laughs> I said, "No, it's the other end of the country." <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, like that. They use yeah. a, they seem to use too many letters. Am I wrong? Uh, well, it's a different language. They don't know the origin uh, uh, of the of the language. It's, of Welsh? It doesn't of Welsh. Mm. It's a strange. It's a Celtic language. Yeah, but it doesn't. It's not like Irish, and it's not like Scottish. It's it's a different language. It's the ancient British language. When the Romans came, we all spoke what is now Welsh, and that's the ancient British uh, language that they spoke then. Did your parents speak Welsh? Uh, my grandfather did because he was. Um, my father's mother and father came from England. They were immigrants. They came into into South Wales looking for work in in the eighteen hundreds. You see, with the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. But before that, you know, my grandfather on my mother's side, Albert Rees Jones, died in the First World War. But he was all the way Welsh. You know, he spoke. But I never met him because he died in the First World War. And you say it was a coal mining family. Coal mining. 
My father was a coal miner. His two brothers were coal miners. So everybody was covered in coal dust all the time? Uh, not all the time. I wasn't a bath, but the thing was, we used to have a tin bath. This is no word of a lie. A tin bath hanging on a nail outside the, the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> and before we had indoor plumbing, honestly. Yeah. So my mother, she used to take this bloody tin bath off the nail, stick it in the, by the fireplace, because that was the only warm room in the house, because my father didn't believe in central heating, so he had a, a big fireplace. And then he would have a bath by the fireplace when he would come home. So he would come home black, Yeah, you know. And um, yeah, Elvis Presley once asked me, he said, are there any black people in Wales? I said, yes. When they come out of the coal mine, yes. You know, <laughs> yeah. but then they have a wash and then they're not. Then, of course, they had showers uh, on near the coal mine, you know, at the top of the top of the pit, the top of the pit, we used to call it. And then they used to shower there. But when I was a child, uh, after the war, um, he used to uh, bath in the house. Did he get sick from the mine? Uh, no, well, he he died of a, of a chest problem, mm. but the doctor in Los Angeles, because I moved my parents to L.A., and um, the doctor there, Dr. Kibowitz, he said, your father's lungs, he's got what we call, oh, was that me? Sorry. It's okay. Maybe it's Jerry Lee Lewis. It could be. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> I still got a flip phone, by the way. Yeah, well, yeah, you don't want to rush into the future. Exactly. <laughs> There's certain things that I <laughs> that I refuse to do. Okay. So, okay, so the doc said the lungs were what? Wet. Because I said he's been a coal miner all his life. He said, yeah, but he doesn't have black lung, and he doesn't have silicosis, uh. which one comes from coal dust and the other one from stone dust. Yeah. But he said he has neither of those. He smoked cigarettes all his life, right? I said, yeah. yeah. He said, well, that's what's killing him. It's the cigarettes. Honestly, you, can you imagine that? I mean, being a coal miner and no effect, yeah. cigarettes. But so as soon as you made enough money, you got him out of there. Oh, yeah. I retired him. I uh, I went home. I, I bought this red Jaguar. And um, in the 60s, you know, after I got my first hit record, which was it's not unusual. Yeah. So... I bought this red Jaguar, which I always wanted, drove back to, because I was living in London then, drove back to Wales, and my mother was cutting sandwiches, making sandwiches for my father's uh, box, you know, this uh, lunchbox. Yeah. To t I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to work. I said, you can't go down the coal mine now. And he said, well, that's what I am. I'm a coal miner. <laughs> I said, dad, please. I said, you know, I'm making a lot of money now. Yeah. yeah, but how long is that going to last, he said. <laughs> you know, when are you going to get a real job? So I said, look, Dad, if I put the money in the bank tomorrow, how much money do you think you're going to make now until you're 65? The, he was Because uh, he was in his 50s. Yeah. And um, so he, he said around about this, that, and the other. Yeah. I said, well, I can put that in the bank. So that's the only way I could stop him from going to the coal mine. <laughs> is give him a guarantee. That he'll be covered. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's sweet. So that like yeah. so that that song, yeah. it's not it's not unusual. Mm -hmm. Like I've always, you know, I don't think I've ever asked anybody this, you know, who I talked to, like because I talked to to like I talked to Steve Miller yesterday. You know, guys who Yeah, yeah, who, I know Steve Miller. Yeah. He's a great guy, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah he is. We were in Vegas to get you know, he was in Vegas oh, yeah? sometimes when I was there. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's like, do you like when you sing these songs, and like we can talk about this with Elvis too. 
do you still feel the songs that every time you perform is it still a unique experience definitely because now especially for me being older i've got a point to to prove you know when you're young of course you know you're full of piss and vinegar you know and you want to get on with it but when you get older the difference i feel is that uh, i can still sing yeah you know and i can prove it and right here it is you know so yeah <laughs> And, that, like that. and that's why you're still doing it, to say, exactly. fuck you, I can yes. still do this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Why is he still doing it? To tell you to go fuck yourselves and stop calling him an old man. <laughs> well, yeah, but you can't piss off the audience. You see? No, 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 no. You they, can't do that. <laughs> they still love you. I imagine that the, uh, the, the size... The size and style of panties coming up to the stage are a bit different now. Well, thank God they don't throw them anymore, because that was that became a joke. To be quite honest with you, <laughs> I know, I know. you know, it was sexy at the beginning. Uh-huh. In the Copacabana, a woman actually took them off and handed me them, yeah. and I wiped my brow and I said, "What you don't catch cold?" Uh-huh. When I handed them back, see, so it was shtick. You know, yeah. you learn shtick. You, yeah. You're a stand-up comedian, sure. right? Yeah. So you got to use whatever. Whatever tools you have, you have to use them. So um, that's how it started. But then it caught on, and then I was bloody, you know, drowning in a sea of panties after a while. (laughs) (laughs) See what you did, huh? You and your big ideas? (laughs) Well, there you go. It backfired on me, you know, so. uh, And room keys. It was like room keys. I was in Vegas, and somebody threw a room key up there, and I said, "Uh, whose is this? And she said, well, use it, and you'll find out. And did you? Uh, no, me, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, you know, at least you're discerning. That's good. You won't just uh, you won't just follow up on any key. No. Well, <laughs> when you start when you start singing, like what you sang when you were a kid, or when? How does it start? Were you in a band originally, or what? No, I was singing as a child. I was singing in school. I yeah. sang in chapel. I used to go to a, a Presbyterian chapel. We sang in uh, we sang gospel songs in chapel. And um, I remember once I sang the Lord's Prayer in school as a child, uh, and uh, the teacher said to me, why are you singing this like a Negro spiritual? <laughs> well, I what? didn't know what she was talking about. I, did, I really didn't know what she was talking about. Huh. But I must have heard Mahalia Jackson sing it or something yeah. you know, on the radio, and it rubbed off on me. So was that were those your uh, influences? I mean, I know you like Little Richard and Jerry Lee and the Rockers, but like there seemed to be a bunch of British soul singers. But you're you're like the first, really. It seems you you were before a lot of the ones I've I've I remember talking to. Yes, well, um, I always musically I always felt more American than I did British because you know I loved fifties rock and roll music, and before that. You see the gospel influence, the blues. Yeah. You know, Big Bill Brunzi. I said, listen to Big Bill Brunzi. And, uh, you know, people like that. And Muddy Waters a bit later. But when I was a kid, after the war, see, I was born in 1940. Right. So after the war, it was the big band scene. You know, it was Sinatra coming up to your ears, you know, or out of whatever else. You know what I mean? It was the crooners and the big band sound. What about that uh, skiffle music or whatever? Well, that was later, you see. That was yeah. Ronnie Donegan. Yeah. Ronnie Donegan. But that's, that's again, is it's American roots music. He was really doing lead belly songs, you know, and stuff like that. Isn't that interesting? So, yeah. So it was a Rock Island Lion, you know. He had a big hit with that. And that's an old 
uh, thing that they used to sing in jail. Yeah. So right. So, so that's uh, well. It's so interesting how much of American uh, black music, primarily, hmm. you know, didn't really yes. become hugely popular until it went through England and come back around. Quite right. Well, a lot of blues singers that came to England, like Big Bill Brunsey, prime example, he couldn't believe it when Otterly Patterson, who was a white blues singer in England, she took him to lunch. Yeah. So he had never had lunch with a white woman in a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, things like that. So they would come over to England, a lot of the black performers, and up to this day, Will I Am says, you know, Jennifer Hudson was doing the voice with Will I Am um, uh, for one, two seasons. And um, both of them said, we feel more appreciated here than we do over there. You know, we seem, I said, well, that, that's a nice thing. I mean, I like that, you know, that you, uh, because sometimes people say, oh, you're more prejudiced over here than you are over there. I mean, hopefully not, you know. I mean, I would hate to think that, um, that British people are, uh, are like that, you know, in general. Uh, but in America, of course, you know, the country is so much bigger and you've got the South. Yeah, it, it, things get lost and it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it, it, I, I, of course. I, I try to figure that out sometimes, but it just seems that when, like, it seems to me in, in the UK that, you know, a country that size with sort of a, a you know, it's, it's, it's possible for everyone to sort of know you and appreciate you. Yes. Somehow. Yes, it's it's simpler. I think it's more. Uh, I felt that when I went from England to America for the first time. Didn't you work with Will? It, I am. Did he produce something for you, or did you do? No, no. He's, he's on the Voice with me. So oh, I'm okay. doing the Voice UK, and he is one of the one of the coaches, like I am. So right. I've known him now for like ten years. So how do you make your break? How did I make my break? Yeah, I was singing. I was singing in. Uh, pubs and working men's clubs. Now, were you doing another job? Did you have other jobs? Were you working? Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah. I worked in a factory because I got married young and I was getting paid, so I had to hold the job down until I was 21. Then I told them all to go fuck themselves. You got married before you were 21? Yeah, 16. Oh, my God. Yeah, my wife and myself. But I had to hold this job down because the manager of the paper mill said, if you can run that machine, you got the job. Right, so I did, and I was getting paid, and my cousin, who was head of the union, tried to stop me getting a fucking wage. So I said, "Excuse me," you know, yeah, because I wasn't old enough. But anyway, once I was twenty-one, I he tried to stop to put, you. He, tried, he he ratted you out. Yeah, he said you shouldn't be getting this this money. So they got the manager there, and the manager said, "Look, as long as I'm paying above the union rate, you can't say anything. If I was paying below, then okay." But he's getting paid above the union rate, so go fuck yourself. Oh, so nice. and he was my cousin. You know, <laughs> he was my cousin, this schmuck. So um, anyway, I love that word, schmuck, by the way. It's a good word. Uh, yeah. The, the Jews have come up with some good things. Of course. Well, I, I worked the Catskills. I was up in the Catskills, you know. I know. I got I to gotta hear about that. But let's get let's get to... So wait, how long did... Okay. How long before you talked to your cousin again? Uh, never. I, <laughs> I said, you fuck you and, and the horse you rode in on. So... Uh, so anyway, <laughs> so I came out of the paper mill. I went on to the building sites, you know, construction, because it was only in the daytime, so I could sing at night. So that's when that's when I really started to. I got, I got a band in Pontypridd, where I come from, 
they were playing YMCA's and stuff like that. And I took them into these working men's clubs that had never, ever seen rock and roll before. You know, they'd never seen uh, electric guitars and electric amplifiers and drums. So as soon as we walk into this first club, the first thing they said was, pay them off, which means pay them not to perform. Mm. And I said, just a minute, fellas, you know, give us a chance here. And they said, oh, not you, Tommy. You know, you're a lovely boy, Tommy. You know, you can sing. But the rest of these pricks, you know, we don't know about them. <laughs> so, so I said to the band, I said, look, keep the volume down to start with. We'll do My Mother's Eyes. You know, My Yiddish Your Mama. Uh-huh. And things like that. You know, and then when they're not looking, Great Balls of Fire. You know, like that, see? So I brought these kids into uh, workmen's clubs. And then I was discovered by Gordon Mills, who was already in show business. And he was one of a, a singing group called the Viscounts. I'd seen him on TV. He came to see me in one of these clubs, took me to London, wrote It's Not Unusual, and that's when we started. What did you have to do with that dude, Meeks? Joe Meek. He was the first one. Um, when we, we put some tapes, we made some tapes in Wales and sending them to, to different producers and record companies, you know, anybody that we could. Uh, so he listened. He liked what we did. So we went up and did an audition for him. Yeah. And uh, but nothing, nothing came of it. Because he went. He sort of became this weird uh, father of uh, kind of techno. You know, like uh, uh, exactly. Yeah, like well, experimental wrote, music, electronic music. Yes, there was a song out called Telstar, uh, which was an instrumental, big hit, number one in America and Britain uh, in the sixties. So because of the Telstar, you know, the the satellite. Yeah. So that and yeah, that was so, him. I mean, he was. Yeah, that was Joe Meek. So, um, so I auditioned for him. We did some songs with him, and he said it was coming out on EMI. We went there. They didn't know I was. Went to Decca. Didn't know I was. So I went and said, "Hey, let me have that contract back, or I'll kill you, you bastard." So, <laughs> so you got it back. So, and then the guy who wrote "It's Not Unusual," he was your guy. <laughs> yes, and then Joe. Then of course they put the bloody records out. After the fact, you know, on Tower, yeah, it came out on Tower, Tower Records in the States. Yeah. I had a hit with a song called Little Lonely One, which came out the same time as It's Not Unusual. And then the the music publishers came around to the hotel that I was staying at in New York. I said, are you going to do Little Lonely One? I said, no, I'm doing It's Not Unusual. Yeah. And they said... (laughs) And so they bought me a case of scotch, which I don't drink. I said, at least if you're going to give me something to drink, give me anything but scotch. What do you drink? (laughs) Well, normally anything but scotch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so wait, you hook up with Gordon Mills and, but you didn't, you, did you ever write anything, any songs? Uh, yes. Well, some B-sides, you know, as we say. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I wrote I wrote some things. I did a song called Looking Out My Window, mm, which I yeah, wrote yeah. myself. And that was uh, Will I Am picked up on that lately. You know, he said a lot of a lot of hip hop people and you know, they'd sample. Oh, that's thing. nice. That's good. Yeah. So and I said, Well, I wrote it. You know, I wrote it on a Cromwell Road in the sixties. I was driving down and it was pissing down with rain and I thought, Oh fuck. And the the, the windscreen wipers were, you know, ching, ching, ching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was and I was looking out the window, you know, looking out the thing. That was so it. Up my window. That was it. Wrote the song. So I wrote some things, but not any of the the big ones that I've had hits with. It's sort of interesting the time you came up because, like, so it's not unusual. You know, becomes a, a hit. What is that like? Sixty five, sixty six. Yes, sixty five exactly. 
So that that make like you're right on the cusp of the whole thing changing, right? So yeah. So you have these, you have a few hits, and then all of a sudden, 1968, 67, everything, the whole, the whole idea of what pop music changes. Well, uh, it changed in in when the Beatles came out. I mean, they opened the door because that was in sixty uh, four, maybe four, sixty four. Yeah. yeah, when they went on the Ed Sullivan Show, that was like big deal. You know, it knocked Elvis Presley out for a while. But for you, the, uh, Elvis being on the Ed Sullivan Show, that was a big deal. Oh, definitely. And when I met Elvis Presley, he said, thank God for you. Oh, really? I, I said, why is that? He said, well, because that's all we're getting from Britain normally are the Beatles and the Stones uh-huh. and all these other wankers, you know. Uh-huh. He didn't say wankers because all these other jerk-offs. You know what I mean? He said, here you are being influenced by Elvis Presley, you know, doing... When I first came to London, they said, look, that Elvis Presley macho shit went out the window. Who said that? Uh, the, the record companies. Yeah. And they said, it's the Beatles. you got to look like a boy now. You can't look like a man. Curly hair doesn't work. That busted <laughs> nose, you got to get it fixed. You know what I mean? I said, why do you go fuck yourself? I said, look, when I, I was singing in South Wales, right? I said... Cardiff is 160 miles from London. You can't tell me that English people are that different to Welsh people. They're not. And, uh, oh, well, it doesn't work, doesn't work. Well, once I got the hit record, of course. It works. Told you so. Well, it's funny because what what, what happened is you held on to the generation of people, of men and women, who, who saw masculinity a certain way. Yes, and Definitely. Like, yeah, like because my dad used to think he looked like you for years. You know, like there's a, and also the Elvis thing is interesting because the idea of one dude, you know, getting up there in front of a band that works for him and and yes. de- and delivering the goods in yes. in a way that Elvis did. So Elvis takes that from the older crooners uh, who exactly. were who were who were a lot less dynamic in a way. Well, he he got it from black gospel music. One of the first things he said to me was. How come you sound, you know, like influenced by the same people? I said, yeah, black gospel music. Yeah. He said, yeah, but are there any black people in Wales? That's what right, the joke, came yeah, from. exactly. So I said, no, the radio. You know, I I I listen to the radio, and uh, and that's what I've gotten it from. And because um, he said I was born there, you know, and he said I went to these black black gospel churches, and uh, you know, loved what I was hearing and rhythm and blues. You see, he was playing more black rhythm and blues records than he was white records right but it, but it, like you know stylistically i can see that but it was still like you know it wasn't the band you know it wasn't like no. you know you know, no one was uh you, there was no you know teeny boppers you know uh you know putting pictures up of uh what's his name the guitar player for elvis you know what i mean yeah scotty moore scotty moore you know there's not <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's no there's no teeny boppers who are like i'm a scotty no. moore person i don't love elvis but scotty <laughs> exactly you know, you're up there in the front, you know, and then you driving it, and and that's it. And and I remember when the Beatles split up, right? Elvis says to me, he says, "Is that right? The Beatles have split up?" I said, "Yeah, this was like 1970, right?" Yeah. And we were in Vegas, and he said, "Wow, what a shame." I said, "Yeah, well, they've done some great music." He said, "Oh no, I'm not talking about that." He said, "I thought it would be great if we had them as our backing band." <laughs> All my life. He said, wouldn't it be great to do a show, you know, and have the Beatles play for us? You know, you could do some of your songs. I do some of my songs. Wow. <laughs> All my life. And I said, 
Well, I don't know whether that would happen, even if they were, you know, if, even if they were still together. So, okay, so after, you know, uh, uh, it's not unusual, and then what's new? Pussycat is huge. I mean, yep. it's just like, but then like, you know, I, what what struck me in reading about this stuff was there was a period there where, you know, obviously the cultural tastes were changing, and, and, and I, yeah. like, I didn't really think about, the i the the idea of 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 country hits like that that the right. idea of country music that you could come in and it's the same with like Ray Charles in a way that yes you know, exactly that there was a tolerance and and also an embracing that if you sang the songs in a certain way the country songs the country fans will will accept you yes and you see to um, to black ears they don't like listening to white country singers. And I can understand why. It's an alien sound. It's, you know, they, they sing through their noses. Uh. Well, they used to anyway. So when Ray Charles did that first country album, Oof, yeah. it was fantastic. But he heard in the songs more than just the way they were being delivered. He heard the, the essence of the songs. The and that's stories, exactly too. What, what I do, yeah. So it, it's um, when I did The Green, Green Grass of Home, it was more like if Ray Charles had done it you know, as opposed to uh, um, one of the country singers, you know, that did it. You know, there were, it was it was a country hit before I got a hold of it, you see. But did the country people like your version? Loved it. Yeah. I heard Jerry Lee Lewis. See, he did an album called Country Songs for City Folk. Mm. And I bought it in the Colony Record Shop, 1965 in New York City. In Times Square. I, said, I remember that place. Yeah, yeah. Colony Record Shop. So I said, you got anything by Jerry Lee? They said, well, he's gone country. He's got this country album. I said, I'll buy it. Took it back to the hotel. Green, green grass of home was on there. And uh, so that was it. I got back to England. I said, I got to record this song. And like you just said, you know, my, my recording manager, Peter Sullivan at the time said, well, you want to go country? Yeah. I said, no, I want to sing country songs. I don't necessarily want to go country. So I tried. Once the green, green grass of home, you see, once that hit, then he said, oh, we've opened the door here now. Yeah. And that was the second wave of Tom Jones, those hits. Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. like they, yeah, the other ones were kind of like, you know, dynamic, big orchestral yes. pop tunes. You know, what's new Pussycat? Yes. And, yeah. and then these ones were, they, they actually brought it down a notch, but your intensity yes. stayed the same. Exactly. And it's always stayed the same. And it's still the same today. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> it got a little lower, though, I hear. A little lower. It's lower now, yes. <laughs> I used to be a tenor. I used to be a tenor. Now I'm a baritone. But everyone's saying you still got the push. You can still push it out there. Definitely. And flexibility. <laughs> see, flexibility is the most important thing. You know, the way you read songs, as an older person, you see, I listen to songs differently now to when I was young. Mm. You know, that's why I'm using the spoken word on two of the tracks on of the this new album one. that I've got out. Yeah, it's called Surrounded by Time. The album is called Surrounded by Time. And there's two songs on there that I spoke as opposed to sing, because sometimes the spoken word is more effective than sure. the singing, because the melody doesn't get in the way, you see. So the the, the theme of this, uh, of this album seems... Uh... Uh, not necessarily political, but uh, definitely wise and, and a little, uh, is it cynical or no? Uh, no, it's basically the story of my life mm. in song. I picked songs that relate to different chapters of my life. Like there's one called Pop Star, which Cat Stevens wrote. And uh, so that's like the beginning for me. Mm. You know, look at me, mom, I'm on TV. 
And when he wrote it, he was taking the piss out of out of the record company because I was with him at the time in the 60s. And he said, the record company want me to be more a pop star. He said, so I think I'll write a song called Pop Star. See what they think of that. You knew you knew him back then? Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, and he had tuberculosis as a child like I did, you know, so we had a little connection. There. Oh, you had tuberculosis, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. From the time I was 12 till I was, uh, yeah, it was 12 to 14. Did you have to be like an iron lung or anything? No, I was in the house. Mm. I had I couldn't leave my house for two years. Holy shit. Yeah. That's sort of like what kids are going through today, but they got a exactly. lot more toys. Exactly. But I, I honestly, I, I feel sorry for kids of that age, especially going through puberty, you see, from 12 to 14. Yeah. You know, things start happening, you know. <laughs> yeah. You don't really know what it is. So, uh, but in those days, everybody else was out in the street playing and I couldn't go out there. Now, of course, nobody's out in the streets playing. Yeah. They're on, but they're on Zoom playing. They're doing what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, all right. So, Cat Stevens, and okay. So that that the pop star is like your early years, and you moved through your whole life, huh? Yes, with the exactly. songs, with so the song choices. Who helped? Did you do all the selections yourself, or you got a guy that yes. helps you look at things? No, no. I basically myself. Yeah. Uh, my son Mark, he co-produced this because he was always on the sessions with me. Because Ethan Johns. I don't know whether you know who Ethan Johns is. I do know. Is. The, uh, what is he? Yeah, Glyn Johns is his father. He was a big producer in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Ethan Johns. So he's done a lot of uh, people. Um, so, uh, like the Kings of Leon, you know, and people like that. He's done a lot of different people. So he's. I started doing albums with him. And I thought, well, I want to use Ethan because he knows me well. And uh, so he said, well, what what songs do you want to do? So I, there's a song that I did called I'm Growing Old, which is by Bobby Cole. He gave it to me in Vegas when I was in my 30s, and this was in the 70s. And he said, I got this great song. You know, do you want to have a go at it? I said, well, I'm not old enough to sing it yet. But I said, if I get there, you know, <laughs> if I get that old, then I'll do it. So I wanted to do that. So there's some really important songs on this album from different parts of my life. And yeah. when, when you were performing before the plague, I mean, like, you still do Vegas? No. No, no. I, I haven't played Vegas for over 10 years now. So uh, I gave that up. You know, been there, done that. You know, it's like that. So I concentrated more on, on Europe. Uh, but still, I do I do shows in the States as well. And what's your audience like? Are they, they long long uh, long-time Tom Jones fans? Some are, but you see, because I'm on The Voice, yeah. you know, which is The Voice UK, a lot of kids watch it. It's a Saturday night in Britain. Uh, it's on Saturday, prime time. So a lot of kids see me on there, and they know who I am now. And little kids come up to me, you know, and it's amazing. This little girl, I was walking in Battersea Park. I live close to this park in London. And um, this little girl came up to me, and she said, Oh, I, I, I watch you on The Voice, and I think you're wonderful. And Oh, I said, thanks very much. I said, you like the show? She said, no, I like you on the show. <laughs> she was 10. Right? So I said, oh. And I thought, oh, maybe it's just a show. And she said, my favorite song is The Green, Green Grass of Home. <laughs> and I thought, shit. You know, a 10-year-old kid is being affected by this song. So you never know. You, you never know who you're affecting. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, music's got this magic to it. You know, long after anybody, you know, once it's out there, it's, you know, it, it, it has a life of its own. 
Definitely. I mean, it's, it's true. What would life be like without music? You know, could you imagine seeing a movie without music in it? No, I, I can't. I, I listen to music no. all the time. I, you know, I'm, I'm constantly uh, listening to stuff, in new stuff. There's never, there's never a shortage of new things. You can never know all of it, you know, and I got back into That's the records. Right. And like, it's just every day I, I, list, I, I learn new things. Yeah. yeah. Well, I do that on the, on the voice. I'm listening to young singers and I think, shit, you know, that's a, that phrasing is really something. You know, how did he or she come up with that? So you, all the time you're learning, you know, you're listening and learning about things. That's the way I feel anyway. No, I think that's true. So once you become once you become big in, in Britain, what, so how did you end up? Because I've talked to people like because of your uh, ten, uh, t- tenure in Vegas, you know, like I talked mm-hmm. to George Wallace a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, George used to open my show. Exactly. A lot of comics, yeah. you know, open for like there were before comedy clubs. You would open for guys like you. Well, see, I was in. Uh, I went to Vegas in '68, and I stopped. I stopped there ten years ago. But I was in. I played Vegas more than Sonata did in terms of years. So I, I mean, I thought, well, you know, I've I've done that. You so know, I mean, well, so in '68, that's sort of like yeah. uh, like you you were one of the new guys in '68, yes. right? So there's a whole generation yes. that had owned the place for a decade already, right? Yes. Well, um, Elvis Presley came to see me in '68. Yeah, and he said, "I've I've wanted to play Vegas since the '50s. They didn't get him in the '50s, right? In Vegas. So we always wanted to get back into Vegas. So he came to see me in '68 and said, "I feel." that we have similar in what we do. Uh, and then he came back in 69. But it was because he came on my life. He, he came to see me and realized that, you know, vibrant uh, rock and roll, sexy, whatever you want right. to call it, music is alive and well, you know, as long as you uh, you get on with it. Put so, on the show, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, put, make it a big show. Tell a few jokes. Well, if, yeah, if you... <laughs> <laughs> if something happens and you need a little humor, throw that in as well. Yeah. But it, I never did a Vegas show. It was the same show as I would do in New York or London, you know, wherever. I got a band and I do the songs, you know, so I but never you, had but dancing you, But you were like a shit. personable guy. I mean, you were, you know, when you did the television show, it's a variety show. Yeah. You got to do bits. You know, you got to yeah. act a little bit. You've done a little sure. act. You're an entertainer on some level. I mean, you're a singer, but as time went on, you got other chops. Yes. 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 And sense of humor, you see. Yeah. I've always believed in that. If you have a natural sense of humor, like Hugh Grant, you know, when you were talking to him the other yeah. day, it's like, that's it. It's, it's, uh, it's 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 a lot easier to go on, you know, with a smile on your face, you know, and sort of look at it like that rather than say, well, this is serious music. Sure. I don't want anybody, you know, like this. No, shit. Well, that, that Vegas was really... always about fun, it seems, with the entertainment. Exactly. Well, anyway, when I'm on stage, I love to do what I do, and hopefully people are going to get it. Yeah, you know, and, and of course. Well, they, well, they. No one's going there, going like, "Who is this guy, Tom Jones?" <laughs> well, one time at the beginning they did. No, I know. But, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, but not now. No one's wandering <laughs> no, no. in, going, "Who's this new fella?" <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but like with Elvis, so you guys stayed friends for this whole uh, long time, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. Right from 65, when I first met him, mm. my first year in show business, 1965, I met him in Los Angeles, 
because I did an Ed Sullivan show from L.A. because uh, it went to color. 1965, it went from black and white to color, and they couldn't transmit from New York, so we had to do it from L.A. So that gave me an opportunity then to go to L.A., and I met Elvis on that trip in September 65. And uh, it was tremendous. Yeah, well, like, you know, it sounds like you had a kind of a fun relationship and, and you respected him and he got a kick out of you and you were yes. like-minded. So, like, yes. I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this with anybody, really, but I, I in terms of these friendships. But, I mean, you know, as you see a guy like Elvis kind of get insulated and, and go into some sort of mental or emotional decline or substance yes. abuse or whatever, I mean, w what do you do? Okay. Well, when we first started talking together in Vegas, he said, what do you take to say to stay sane? Mm. What is your drug of choice? I said, a pint of Welsh beer or maybe a <laughs> bottle of champagne. You know what I mean? Yeah. I dr I'm a drinker. I'm not, I wasn't interested in, in anything else, thank God. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, booze is a drug as well, if you abuse it. Right. So that was it. So I said, no, I don't. So then one night I came in to see him. And he thought that he was getting away with stuff, you see, by taking pills and drinking a lot of water and he wasn't getting hangovers the following day. Yeah. So one time I went to see him and he said, uh, Tom Jones said tonight, you know, and uh, uh, keep drinking that champagne, Tom, you'll be all right. You yeah. know, like, ha ha. And I said, yes, I will. And I will be all right. Yeah. And here I am, you know. Well, he, you know, he got the food and everything else. I guess, like, you know, it's hard to imagine like all you guys who can do the you know men and women who can do the performing on on the level with the band and music and everything else it's a real gift yeah. and, and it's a unique thing but I, I guess there's no way to really know the toll that it took on that guy you know being no have to carry that the burden of being elvis presley into uh middle age you know i don't think he could hack it no i don't think that elvis would have enjoyed growing old Right. I don't think he would have liked it. No, he, he it's like Marilyn Monroe. You know, any of those icons that die when they when they're young. You know, they'll always be icons. It's just a shame that he that they filmed him when he got heavy towards the end. Mm. You know that that's 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 a shame. Uh, Priscilla says that because I'm friendly with Priscilla Presley, and she said I I don't like it when I see those old um, footage of him when he got fat. You know, but he always sang. You see, his voice was always there, and uh, yeah, it 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 was a shame to to what happened to him. And um, I tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen to to anybody towards the end. You know, oh really? He fired all the guys. That, oh, the Memphis Mafia. They came to me, uh, Sonny West. Yeah, uh, one of his bodyguards. You know, he said, "Could you talk to Elvis because he's falling apart and we can't save him." So I said, I'll try. Um, I, I, I used to call him, you know, and at one time, anytime I called him, he would get back to me, you know, but uh, like the last two years, I would say, of his life, uh, he never returned any of my calls, you know, and uh, and then he was gone. That's so, sad, huh? Yeah, it is sad. Because, you know, when it happens, it's always after the fact, of course, but you think, shit, if I'd really pushed, I wondered if, if I could have gotten through to him, you know, and I could have straightened him up, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I Well, usually not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what they said. The guys that would be, how do you save somebody from yourself? Yeah, if they that's don't want to do it, you know, what are you going to do? I know. Well, you're fortunate in that, like, whatever your compulsions were, they weren't uh, They weren't uh, going to kill you. <laughs> no. 
Exactly. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting, you know, these people that, you know, like in your business, you've met a lot of these people where, you know, they're 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 all in in terms of like they're somehow or another becomes they're risking their life to do it. This this music, you know, that the lifestyle they believe fuels it or they they just can't get out of it. But and they get known for it. Like, you know, you've you met Janis Joplin. I mean, when. Yeah, sure. And and you and you you had respect for her, but did you feel when you talked to some of these people that they were going to not last that long? Um, not really, because there was a lot of people that did last. Right. You know that that were heavy into shit. You know, in the sixties. Sure. Uh, Eddie Clapton said, "If you remember the sixties, you weren't there." Well, I don't believe that. Right. But um, there's a lot of people got messed up, but they're still here. Eddie Clapton is still here. Yeah, you, yeah, I, th- I think you, you, you Brits seem to be built for something that some of us aren't. <laughs> I mean, Christ, Keith Richards. You know, yeah. I mean, you look at Keith Richards. He looked like he should have died ten years ago, yeah. but he's he's still yeah. there. So a lot of us came through it. Now, Jimi Hendrix, I knew, wow. and he, you know, he went. And Janis Joplin did my TV show. The Jimmy, I just listened to this box set, Jimmy at Winterland. You know, it's like uh, three nights of shows. What, you know, I just like he was from another planet, dude. Yeah. I, well, I knew the two guys that uh, that made up the experience. Oh, the British guys, you know, no- Noel and Mitch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, they were ligging around, you know, in Ladbroke Grove in 1964 when I first came to London. We were all there, you know, trying to get ahead. Now, what about, like, the, the, the sort of, was there a period where there was sort of, uh, you know, uh, a, a tension between, like, you and, like, the Stones or, you know, the Beatles or anything like that? Like, I mean, did did they see you in a certain way and you see them in a certain way? Did you have a relationship with any of them? Yeah, we had a relationship. Who? We used to, uh, we used to be in the clubs. You see, in London in the 60s, you knew that you were in the middle of it. Yeah. You know, before that, it was always American. We always listened to American acts, American singers. But then when the Beatles kicked the door down, yeah. we thought, we're in it, you know, right there with hit records, all all these different clubs we would hang out in. Yeah. All together. You know, we were all in it together. Eddie Clapton, I remember talking to him outside of a club, and he said, look, I, you know, I put this band together, and we're going to put a record out, Cream. Yeah. You know, he said, the, the first one didn't make it. If the second one don't, I'll play guitar for you, okay? <laughs> I said, sure. All my life, and that's a fact. So it was. we were all there at the time. We just sort of went separate ways because of the music that we were recording. You know, I was I was doing available material at the time. Right, you know, and right, it took right. me it took me on a different different path. But we were all there in London, in these clubs in the sixties, and it was fantastic. So when was the Catskill period? Was that like before Vegas? <laughs> no, no, that was later. That was when I became a Vegas act, as they say. Oh, so then they're like Come play for the Jews. Yeah. Well, I did that in the talk of the town in London in 67 because I, I sang my, I sang my Yiddish mama. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that my father, my father used to sing when I was a kid. I didn't know it meant Jewish mother. I just thought it was mother. You know? Where'd he get it, your father? He, he learned it as a kid. See, we used to be a Shabbos guy. You know what a Shabbos guy is? A guy who knows Jews? Well, a Shabbos, as you know, and yeah. the Goy, of course, is non-Jews. Well, yeah. we would hang about outside synagogue. There was a synagogue in Pontypridd, and on on the Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath, of course, uh, we would be hanging around because one of us would be picked to go and put the lights on 
and stoke the boiler and like that. Right, right. So they they do the work that you can't do. Shabbos guy. Got it. That's what we were called. Was there, my money, father did was it. there money in it? My, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my father did it before me. You know, he used to do it when he was a kid. Same thing. So when I, we lived in the same area. So, yeah, that was it. You'd be, you'd be out in the street playing marbles or whatever the fuck you, you know, like yeah. this, hoping that one of these Jewish fellas, the rabbi, you yeah. know, would come and say, uh, excuse me, Sonny, could you come and yeah. like that? Yeah, they yeah. do the work, do good, uh, shut the lights off. Uh, yeah, that's exactly. funny. For a few bucks yeah. or what? I used to box when I was a kid. No, yeah. like for a few dollars, they give you a oh, few Oh, sorry. Pounds. I thought you said, did you box? Yes. Well, it was shillings. Yeah, you shillings, know, those sure. Days. Yeah, and, shillings. And you box too? Is that how you broke your nose? Yes. Were you good? Not good enough, but by all accounts. <laughs> <laughs> did you know Bob Hoskins? Well, no, not not well. Yeah. I I you know, say hi on, on the street because he lived in London. Who just yeah. Him. But I, I didn't know him well. No, no. Seems like you two would get along for some reason. Yeah, exactly. Well, I tell you who I did meet was an American, uh, Robert Mitchum. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Now, when I was doing the TV shows in the late 60s, there's a there's a, a, a an actor called Ronnie Fraser, uh-huh. who was a character actor, British character actor. And he said, if you ever get a chance to meet Robert Mitchum, he said, you two will get on like a fucking house on fire. Well, I was doing a TV uh, movie up in Santa Barbara. Yeah. And I walked, and I was down on the beach, walked back into the hotel, uh-huh. and Robert Mitchum, Robert Mitchum was sitting in the bar. Right. And as I'm passing, he said, hey, Tom, like Sonato said, you know, yeah, yeah. come <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the same thing. So I sat down. I said, can I take off my Speedos at least? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on the beach. No. I said, let me go up and change. I'll be right back. Just sit down. You know, okay, great. <laughs> yeah, it is, Robert Mitchell. And he was, you know, Roddy Fraser said we'd hit it off. And he was right. I drank with him all day in this bar. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were, we were drinking uh, Bloody Marys, right? So he said, what are you drinking? I said, what are you drinking? He said, Bloody Mary. Okay, Bloody Mary. So I'm drinking. So after about six or seven or eight or nine or whatever we were, I said, there's something wrong with this one. He said, what's wrong with it? I said, I don't know. It's not tasting right. He said, let me try it. And he went, oh, sorry, it's mine. I used tequila instead of vodka. Uh, yeah. I said, well, what happened to mine that had vodka in it? Gone. You know what I mean? He drank. <laughs> <laughs> but he was great. And we had a whole, I had a whole day with him. And it was like, you know, a lifetime with anybody else. Oh, well, that's, that's a sweet memory, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, the, so when you're up in the Borscht Belt... What do you what do you like? So you're playing Vegas. They're like, we're come play the the hotels. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I was at uh, Caesar's Palace you know, yeah. for a long time. Yeah, and uh, so they said nightclubs. You know, where's the where's the biggest nightclub? Now up in the Catskills, uh, what was the name of that hotel? The Concord. The Concord. Yeah, they had the biggest showroom in the world at one time. Oh wow, it really? Was huge. I didn't know that. Huge, and the only thing that I came up against was they used to use knockers on the table. Yeah, you know, like. Bang. They said, "No, do you want?" Because they normally, they instead of clapping, they use these knockers. But it's it's not like they don't like you. It's that they like you. Yeah. But some people don't like the knockers on the table. I said, "Well, I'm not used to that. You know, I mean, I'd rather if they could clap. Right. But if they don't like me, then don't clap. You know what I mean? Don't you don't have to clap, but." You know, I, I don't know anything about those knockers hitting the wooden, you know, on the yeah, table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they said, okay, it doesn't have to be like that. But, you know, I played there many times, so they must have liked me. And uh, did you work with any comics up there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve Allen. 
Oh, yeah. He, he, he was up there, yeah. Um, but there was a lot of, uh, well, a lot of the comics that I used were Jewish, you see. It was um, Jackie, Jackie Gale. Oh, Jackie, 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 Jackie sure, Jackie yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, he, he toured with me. He was on, I mean, he was hilarious. We'd be in a bloody uh, limousine, right? And I used to wear the cross and chain. Well, I still do. Yeah. And he said, you know what? He said, I love the fact that you wear that cross and chain. I said, why is that then? He said, it keeps the bats away from the limousine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, he said, because I'm, he said, I've realized I'm working with Dracula. He said, you don't get up in the daytime. <laughs> he said, I can't get any towels. You know, we don't need hotels. And I called out for towels and he said, well, Mr. Jones doesn't want to be disturbed until... <laughs> You know, you have to do. He said, "Fuck, Mister Jones. What about me?" <laughs> so, what uh, what was the process of uh, of being knighted? Is that a big day for you? That was the biggest day of my life. Really? Because oh, when you're a kid, right? Yeah. You think, oh, I'd love to be a professional singer first of all. Sure. And I'd love to be able to get a hit record. I'd love to be on TV. You know, yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah. But but if somebody had told me that I was first of all going to get the OBE, which is the Order of the British Empire, that was the first medal that I got, and then the Queen will knight you one day. Well, I mean, I would have said you're full of shit right. you know, when I was a kid, you know, because knights in those days, you see, they, they weren't in entertainers, you know, years ago. Yeah, you'd have to kill, you know, you'd have to kill somebody or you know, be brave in like that. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and I used to look at my my mother had a medal picture of of my my grandfather who died in the First World War, and I thought I'll never be able to have a medal like that because he had a lot of them. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And I thought I'd never because I I never went to the army. Yeah. So I thought, how can I compete with that? Well, I've got the OBE medal and I've got the the knight uh, knight's bachelor medal, and I thought, shit, if my grandfather could only see me now, you know, <laughs> he, he wouldn't he, believe. He it. would have said, "What did you do for that?" Exactly. <laughs> how many German? How many Germans did you have to kill for that? <laughs> so uh, was it was it exciting to meet the Queen and everything? Oh, I started doing the royal show. You see, in the sixties, yeah, early. You know, I, they got me on there in the, like sixty six or sixty seven, maybe. And so, you know, I was I used to go and do a lot of these royal shows. And one time, uh, we lined up. You know, when the Queen comes along, she says. Are you still living in America? And straight away, without thinking, I said, yes, but only for convenience sake, you might stay. <laughs> <laughs> it was like shot out, you know. Oh, fuck. You know, I'm going to be in the tower if I don't. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's lovely, though, the queen. The queen the queen is unbelievable, honestly. Yeah. She's, a, she's an unbelievable person. I mean, her husband just died, right? Yes, yes. Right. I got a story about him, if you want to hear it. Sure. How much time we got? You got as much right. time as you want. Okay. So um, I was doing a thing for the Wildlife Association, which he was head of. Uh-huh. Uh, we, were in the, we went to this club called the Talk of the Town in London where they were holding this thing. So I agreed to go and uh, do it. And so we, had a, we were in the palace first of all before yeah. we went over there to do the show. Right. So he, he came up to me. Now, in the newspaper prior to this, he said, Tom Jones sounds like he gargles with pebbles. Huh. <laughs> right? Yeah. So when I read it, I thought, what the fuck? So he, he, he came up to me, which he never had to do, and he said, I'd like to explain something. And I said, yes, okay. <laughs> and he said, uh, 
you know, your royal highness, yes, sir. Uh, and he said, uh, he said, look, he said, I was at a small businessman's meeting. And he said they were all pissing and moaning about, well, he didn't say pissing, but he said they were moaning about, you know, they don't have enough um, from the government. They're not getting enough help. Uh, yeah. And I, he said, I used you as, as an example. He said, I said, look, if a coal miner's son from a little town in South Wales can become a fucking multimillionaire, what are you bricks on about? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Words to that effect. Yeah. You know, and he said, and then, and he said, and then I was quoted as saying, you, you must uh, gargle with pebbles. He said, I mean that your voice is so powerful you know, and so strong uh -huh. that you must gargle with pebbles. Cause he used to like to say things like that, you know? Yeah. And I said, well, thank you very much, sir. And he didn't have to explain anything like that to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he could have told me to go fuck myself. I, you know, I, I said, I just said, yes, sir. <laughs> you know? Thank you. But thank you, uh, sir. Yeah. Thank you very much. sir. yes, but he did. <laughs> he took the time and I'll never forget that, you know? Never... Yeah. 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 You know, but you know, it, even, even, even with that spin, Tom, you know, I'm 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 wondering if he was just covering his ass. Well, I don't know. He was very <laughs> diplomatic. Because <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to make that into a compliment. That's just from an outside listener here. I, <laughs> I understand. I understand. I felt the same way at the time, but I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> hey, man, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Because my son, by the way, listens to you all the time, so he knows exactly. You yeah. know, when you had Obama on and, yeah. you know, like yeah, that. Yeah. But he said, uh, it's going to be good. So, and I'm glad I did it. Thank you. Did you have a good time? Wonderful time. It was great talking to you. I'm glad you're doing so well. And uh, I'm excited about the new record. Thanks, Mark. All right. Take it easy. All the best. That was Tom Jones, the new record. Surrounded by Time, out this Friday, April 23rd on S-Curve Records. Get it where you get music. It's weird, man. The closer is basically the bread. So if that doesn't, yeah. And he doesn't have enough to share. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's good. Maybe it seems like a lot driving around the country with a Viking range. Here's some guitar. Enjoy your day. Your week. I'll talk to you Thursday. Fonda, all of them, cat angels everywhere. <laughs>